Tumor Talks, a podcast about clinical cases in oncology, and we are your hosts. I'm Dr. Kathy Marshall, a medical oncologist. I'm Dr. Beatrice Wills, a medical oncologist and hematologist. And I'm Dr. Jonah Amata, an internal medicine resident physician. Welcome to Tumor Talks. This is the Tumor Talks Basic Series. Today, our tumor type is AML. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Webster. Dr. Webster is an assistant professor of oncology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's active in the Division of Hematology Malignancies Leukemia Program at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Webster's research is focused on improving outcomes for patients with ALL and AML. His primary research interests include the incorporation of immunotherapy and post-transplant maintenance therapies to prevent disease relapse following allogeneic bone marrow transplantation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Webster, and we are so excited to hear what you have to teach us about AML. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking. Awesome. Let's get started. Um, first, can you talk to us a little bit about the epidemiology of AML? Absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the things that's AML, first of all, is the most common acute leukemia that we see in adults. And it, there are about 20,000 new cases in the United States every year. Um, it primarily affects older patients. So the median age at diagnosis is 68. Um, and when we think about what are the risk factors for getting AML, it turns out that the majority of patients um, it's sporadic, but we also do think about uh, people that have had prior exposure to chemotherapy or radiation uh, as being a risk factor for getting AML. Um, and so those are people that have been treated for other malignancies with chemotherapy or radiation. Um, and there are also some autoimmune diseases uh, for which chemotherapy is used that can ultimately lead to a what we call a therapy-related myeloid neoplasm. And that probably ends up being less than 10% of the AML patients that we see. And so um, there also are a small percentage probably, and we're learning more about this, of people that have um, inherited familial syndromes that predispose them to getting AML. But that again is probably um, only 5% or so of the AML patients. So the vast majority of cases end up being sporadic. Great, um, I think you hinted at some of the answers um, I have for this next question for you. Can you talk to me more about presentation of someone with AML that would lead them to be diagnosed with AML and uh, maybe screening tests if there are any? Yeah, great question. And I, I think there aren't, you know, one of the things is there certainly are not great screening tests. The uh, By the nature of its name, acute myeloid leukemia, it's something that happens relatively acutely. Um, and it's interesting because the presentation is variable. So there are some people where they, they may have an extended months-long period of low blood counts, um, before they're diagnosed, there are other people that that present quite acutely um, and become quite acutely ill in a matter of days or weeks. And so, in general, um, you know, we they're they're sort of the oftentimes um, it is related to blood counts, and so people have anemia 
and thrombocytopenia. And so those lead to people being fatigued and sometimes short of breath. And the thrombocytopenia, the low platelets, can lead to people having bleeding complications. Um, and then the third thing is that the white blood count for people with AML can either be very high, which it in and of itself can cause symptoms, um, or it can be low, um, which increases the risk of infections. And so a lot of people will present with sort of non-specific feeling fatigued, feeling short of breath, um, perhaps fevers, and that will lead to a CBC, a complete blood count being checked that will show abnormalities, uh, often including anemia, thrombocytopenia, and either a low or high white blood count um, with neutropenia. Um, so that that's sort of the typical presentation. And some people get, uh, it, it can take some time to make the diagnosis um, because the symptoms are so nonspecific. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see that a patient goes to their primary care doctor and is treated for an upper respiratory infection um, and then comes back and it's not getting better. And, and then uh, labs get checked and that's when the diagnosis is made. So Dr. Webster, say you have a patient who, you know, was referred to you because they've had these, you know, prolonged cytopenias, hence they have a concern for AML, or as you mentioned, and what I've seen more as a resident is um, a patient admitted for acute leukemia. Um, what is the initial workup and kind of imaging that you use for, you know, further diagnostics? Yeah, so I the, think the, the first thing is looking at the laboratory uh, results and, you know, the, the most important thing is the complete blood count and being able to look at a smear under the microscope. Um, and if we are able to, sometimes we're able to make the diagnosis really off of the peripheral blood. And so it may not be that it's necessary to do um, additional procedures. Um, so if we see a lot of circulating leukemia cells, then you can send flow cytometry, which helps you to be more specific about what kind of acute leukemia it is. That's not entirely possible to, to diagnose uh, just morphologically looking under the microscope. Um, and so we require our pathology colleagues to, to help with that. Most of the time, a new acute leukemia patient um, requires a bone marrow biopsy um, because that helps us to enumerate the number of blasts that there are. And so blasts are these immature white blood cells that are the leukemia cells. And you know one of the important things that we use to differentiate acute myeloid leukemia from myelodysplastic syndrome is the is a cutoff of blasts of greater than 20% is acute myeloid leukemia, less than 20% um, is usually uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. And, and so uh, it's, you know, where somebody has greater than 20% circulating blasts in the peripheral blood, um, sometimes you can make that diagnosis right there. Um, but a lot of times it, it does require a bone marrow biopsy to be certain um, and to help you to differentiate between those two diseases specifically. Um, so usually it's a bone marrow biopsy. Um, some, it's relatively rare for patients with acute myeloid leukemia to present with extra medullary manifestations. So things like masses, lymphadenopathy, um, leukemia cutis, so skin involvement is maybe uh, the most common thing that we see at the time that somebody presents. Um, but there's not generally a lot of imaging that's uh, necessarily involved in, in making the diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. And so a lot of times it's a bone marrow biopsy um, where, and we get flow cytometry that we send with the bone marrow biopsy. And 
those two things in combination are sort of the tests that help us to make the diagnosis. So after all of this, how exactly do you stage AML if we do stage AML? Right. And I, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, I, I try to emphasize to patients is that, you know, most other malignancies, solid tumors like breast cancer that people are familiar with are staged based on how far the tumor has spread from the primary site, which, for example, is the breast. And, you know, in AML, the it is a disease of the blood and, and the bone marrow where your blood is everywhere in your body. And so we can't use that sort of a conventional staging system to say how far has this spread um, because it, it's everywhere. Um, and so as a consequence, we, we try to use, often we talk about it in terms of a risk stratification system um, where, uh, you know, the, there are a couple different systems that are out there, but usually there's a favorable risk group, an intermediate risk group, and a poor risk group. Um, and it's generally done based on something called cytogenetics. So looking at chromosome abnormalities, and now increasingly we're also using gene mutations in, in order to risk stratify patients. And that risk stratification, what it really boils down to is how likely are we to cure you with conventional chemotherapy? Um, and, and so people in the favorable risk category have a better chance of being cured than those in the intermediate and poor risk categories, um, using conventional chemotherapy alone. Are there any pathology findings? Um, you mentioned the bone marrow biopsy earlier and a smear that, um, we need to know about. I think one of the things in AML that, that people think about a lot when they think about a peripheral blood smear or looking, you know, looking at a bone marrow biopsy, the, the term our rods, um, I think is a, is the, is something that everybody hears about. And so when we look under the microscope and we see our rods, one of the things that it makes us worried about in the right clinical context is could this be acute promyelocytic leukemia or APL, which truly is a, is a subset of, I think of it as a sort of a subset of AML, but it's a very different disease. And it is one that is, it's very important to make the diagnosis early on because uh, patients have significant bleeding complications. They often present in DIC, so disseminated uh, intravascular coagulopathy, where they can have bleeding and clotting complications. And the interesting thing about APL is that the, the therapy has improved so much over the last 20 years that almost all of the patients um, that die from APL die in the first um, in the first month or so uh, due to bleeding complications or other complications uh, with treatment, infectious complications, and so forth. So it's a very curable disease. It's important to make the, the diagnosis early. And so seeing our rods just says that this is a myeloid malignancy, but it, in the right clinical context, it makes people think about APL. Um, so that's one of the big findings that, that we really think about um, in pathology um, when, when we're looking under the microscope. And it's something that you can see, you know, the, as soon as you get the labs done when the patient presents to the hospital. With my experience in our leukemia service at the Sydney Chemo Cancer Center, I learned, you know, that cytogenetics and molecular markers can be very important in determining induction and treatment plans for AML. And you touched on this earlier. Could you talk to us a little bit, Dr. Rester, about important ones that you test for? Yeah. And so we, you know, what we try to do is I think there, and this is something that can be confusing. We, we often use 
uh, a few different tests that we send at the time of diagnosis to try to learn about people's cytogenetics, so their chromosome abnormalities, and then uh, gene mutations. And there's also a sort of a third subset, which is gene transloc or uh, chromosomal translocations um, that sometimes can be picked up by conventional cytogenetics, such as a karyotype, sometimes require fluorescence in situ hybridization. And we also now have PCR tests um, that, that look for specific translocations, um, some of which are relatively more common in AML, some of which are less common. Um, but anyway, what the, the cytogenetics um, at diagnosis help us in a variety of ways. So one, as I was saying earlier, they help us to know how likely is somebody to be cured with conventional chemotherapy and the favorable risk cytogenetics that we think about, um, the, the two favorable um, karyotypes include inversion 16 and translocation 821, which are often referred to as the core binding factor leukemias. Um, and so we look for those very early on because one of the things that's very clear is that adding gemtuzumab or mylotarg to treatment for patients that have that favorable risk abnormality, um, adding that drug can, can be beneficial. Um, and so we try to make, to learn about that early and to add, to add mylotarg. Um, we also, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the poor risk category, we look for a complex karyotype, um, which is multiple, usually defined as at least three chromosomal abnormalities, um, where, you know, one of the things we worry about when we see that is that conventional chemotherapy is not as likely to be effective. Um, and we now have less intensive chemotherapies with a combination of azacitidine and venetoclax that actually works pretty well in those patients to get them into remission. Um, and so uh, sometimes we we wait for that result also to make a decision about what initial treatment we're going to give patients. Um, and then I think the the other thing that we're looking at, so so those the the cytogenetics can be both prognostically, useful in terms of how likely are we to cure you with chemotherapy alone, uh, but they can also be useful in terms of guiding our therapy. Um, and then the other thing that we're very interested in is next generation sequencing um, and looking at gene mutations. And, and gene mutation results can take a little bit longer to come back. Um, you know, a, a fast turnaround is, is somewhere in the four to seven day range, but it's not unusual for us to have to wait two weeks um, to know about gene mutations. Um, and the gene mutations can give us some information also about a risk category. Um, and so there, there are some uh, gene mutations that, that tend to be more favorable and make it more likely that we can cure a patient with chemotherapy alone and some less so. Um, but, you know, I'm specifically thinking about the TP53 mutation being something that makes it a lot less likely that we're going to, makes it almost impossible to cure a patient with chemotherapy alone. And and in many cases makes it difficult to cure the leukemia at all. Um, but then we also have, uh, there are gene mutations for which we have targeted therapies. And so that's one of the reasons we, we are interested in looking at that. And, and specifically um, when patients are newly diagnosed, a FLT3 mutation is important to find because we have FLT3 inhibitors that we add to conventional chemotherapy. And do seem to improve uh, long-term survival for patients that have FLT3 mutations. And 
about a third of newly diagnosed AML patients will have a FLT3 mutation. So it's relatively common to have that. There are some other gene mutations for which uh, there are targeted agents, but we don't use those as much in the frontline setting um, outside of clinical trials at the moment. Thanks so much for that wonderful answer, Dr. Webster. Uh, lastly, um, are there any other important consultants that you want involved in the care of patients with AML? So, you know, a lot of times we we don't, I think the, the consulting group that we probably uh, have the most contact with ends up being infectious disease doctors. And so the, the major complication of AML and treatment of AML is that uh, p- patients become neutropenic um, and, and for prolonged periods of time that put them at high risk of infections. And so, uh, you know, we, we won't, we don't just uh, routinely call uh, the infectious disease team for every AML patient that walks in the door, but certainly it's quite common that, that patients will have uh, persistent fevers um, in spite of being on broad spectrum antibiotics. And, um, and, you know, sometimes patients develop fungal infections and things of that nature. And so the infectious disease doctors are, are the most important consultants that are involved, I think, in, in the care of AML patients on a regular basis. Um, the, the other consulting team that I, I think probably doesn't get enough credit because they don't perhaps uh, consult in, the, in a conventional way in the hospital, but is our blood bank. Um, and ultimately, uh, the pathologists and, and the teams that run the blood bank, because uh, these patients have such high transfusion needs, and it's, it's really critical um, to have a good blood bank that's involved, that's making sure um, that, that patients are getting the, uh, the right um, types of transfusions that, that they'll respond to um, and that don't necessarily uh, compromise uh, things in the future. So, you know, giving irradiated blood products and so forth is important um, for these patients. Yeah, I can definitely attest to calling the blood bank quite often on my leukemia service, Dr. Webster. Um, but again, thank you for teaching us today about AML. And um, we learned so much and we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me, Jonah. Have a, have a good one. You too. Thank you. So to recap, AML is the most common acute leukemia in adults. The median age of diagnosis is usually 68 years, so older patients. Presentation can be variable, with patients presenting with symptoms due to their anemia, thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, or even leukocytosis. Patients can also present with extramedullary manifestations, with the most common one being leukemia cutis. Workup can include a smear, flow cytometry, or bone marrow biopsy, which helps us determine the number of blasts. There is no conventional staging system for AML, but we usually risk stratify our patients based on a couple things, cytogenetics, translocations, and genetic mutations. Not only do we risk stratify patients based on this data, but it can also guide our treatment decisions for certain patients. Important consultants for AML include infectious disease and transfusion medicine. Thank you for listening to today's Tumor Talks Tumor Basics podcast for AML with Dr. Webster. We appreciate your time and listen to us again. A special thanks to Primo for recording and composing our background music. 
Humor Talks is an independent podcast that does not represent the institutional views or opinions of our employers, Johns Hopkins Hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering, or that of our guests. This podcast is created for medical education and should not be counted as medical advice. 